Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Build Back Smaller? After months of stalled negotiations, little agreement in either chamber of Congress, and a declaration that Build Back Better was dead, last week, Senate Democrats were able to make progress on not one, but two separate bills. The first, known as the Chips and Science Act, was a more bipartisan effort from the Senate that has generally been split down party lines. While the second, known as the Inflation Reduction Act, is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin's answer to the issues that caused friction in previous iterations of Build Back Better. But is the Schumer-Manchin deal enough to secure the vote of the other Democratic senator holding out, Arizona's Kirsten Sinema? And will it make it to President Biden's desk? Tax Notes reporter Benjamin Guggenheim will talk more about this in just a minute. Later in the episode, we hear from Tax Notes federal author John Craig about the article he co-wrote on controversies regarding IRS appeals access. But first, Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Now, before we begin, I should note that this recording was made on August 2nd, and since it's about ongoing legislative processes, things may have changed by the time it comes out. Now, we've seen a lot of bills starting in one House of Congress and dying in the other, but we just recently got full approval from Congress on a bill. Could you tell us about that one? Sure. So the Chips and Science Act, as it is called, passed the Senate on July 27th in the House the day after. It makes a historic investment in American capacity to produce semiconductors or chips, as policymakers have been calling them for short. Although these sound like kind of an obscure technology, these things are really the building blocks for all of our electronic devices and really power our everyday lives from our phones and televisions to medical devices and cars. They are also critical to our national security infrastructure and are used to make advanced missile systems, satellites, fighter jets, that sort of thing. This bill would rebuild local American manufacturing capacity to produce these semiconductors. It provides $52 billion in new subsidies to encourage the construction of semiconductor fabrication plants and a 25% investment tax credit for semiconductor manufacturing. The science part of this bill also includes new investments in a technology and innovation directorate at the NSF, the National Science Foundation, with an eye towards boosting American competitiveness in developing artificial intelligence, robotics, and biotechnology. 
It also makes a substantial investment in the energy department and regional technology hubs that lawmakers say would support tech startups in more geographically diverse areas. So why did this bill pass now? So the legislation has been more than two years in the making. As Senator Mark Warner of Virginia told me, the sausage making for this particular bill has been particularly ugly. And while it makes some game-changing investments, it has been substantially gutted down from what its main proponents, such as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Todd Young of Indiana, originally envisioned for the bill, which is a piece of legislation that would fundamentally change U.S. foreign policy towards China and the Indo-Pacific region. Generally speaking, within the last two years, the COVID-19 pandemic really exposed vulnerabilities in U.S. supply chains, causing a nationwide chips shortage for one. Lawmakers realized that without domestic production capacity, Americans could be left stranded in a national emergency. This is especially concerning since the island nation of Taiwan dominates the semiconductor market, and if China invaded the island as it is threatened to do in the past, that would pose a grave threat to U.S. national security. So within the past three weeks, there's been a sense among lawmakers that if the U.S. doesn't act soon, key semiconductor manufacturers are making their strategic business decisions now and will take their business out of the country where there are better incentives to set up shop. For instance, Mark Warner has cited that Intel delayed the groundbreaking for a new semiconductor facility in Ohio over concerns that the chips and science bill wouldn't be passed. That kind of created a sense of urgency for Congress to act before everyone leaves for August recess to get this thing done. How did the votes come down? It seemed a more bipartisan vote than usual. So the vote in the Senate was 64-33 with 17 Republicans and 47 Democrats voting for it and 243 to 187 in the House with 24 Republicans joining to approve the legislation. So it was really a bipartisan effort. In the Senate, 60 votes, of course, are needed to clear a potential filibuster of the bill. So there needed to be at least 10 Republican senators to get the Chips and Science Act over the finish line. That said, the bill was not without its detractors. I mean, Bernie Sanders of Vermont repeatedly decried the bill as corporate welfare and said it was hypocritical that Congress would give billions of dollars to highly profitable corporations but couldn't even pass critical social policies such as universal childcare and parental leave. Republicans such as Chuck Grassley and Mike Lee of Utah, and a rare case of agreement with the Democratic Socialist from Vermont, also called the bill fiscally irresponsible. Its passage also notably relied on a kind of political sleight of hand by Schumer, which left Republicans pretty upset afterwards. What sort of sleight of hand? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Democrats needed the support of at least 10 Republicans to get this bill into law. However, that was at one point jeopardized by Democrats' partisan negotiations over their reconciliation deal. Minority leader Mitch McConnell told them in June that no Republicans would support the semiconductor legislation so long as Democrats kept working on a partisan bill that would include raising taxes and massive climate spending. 
So that reconciliation bill had seemed dead for a while, leading Republicans to drop their ultimatum and ultimately help Democrats pass the Chips and Science Act. However, mere hours after that vote happened, Manchin and Schumer out of nowhere announced a revived reconciliation bill with 725 pages of text. That left many Republicans feeling like they had been effectively duped. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to get started and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season. Now, before we get to what is in the Schumer Mansion bill, why don't we take a step back and talk a bit about the Build Back Better and how it sort of evolved and reports of its death. Sure. So the original Build Back Better framework was a massive social policy agenda that in the summer of 2021 looked to have a price tag of around three and a half trillion dollars. It comprised all the economic ambitions that Biden laid out on the campaign trail and subsequently described in detail during the spring of 2021 from proposals that would provide free preschool to every three and four-year-old in America, expand high-quality childcare for American families, lower the cost of Medicare, invest in affordable housing, and set aside a record-chattering $555 billion to transition the economy into clean energy and address the climate crisis. Biden and Democrat leadership intended to pass these proposals into law through a process called reconciliation, which involves bills that essentially solely affect the federal budget and only requires a majority of those presents to pass. With every senator in attendance, that would mean 50 Democrat votes plus the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. The ambitions of that agenda were ultimately shrunken down over the objections of the two most centrist Democrats in the Senate, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And the House ended up passing a roughly $2 trillion bill in November 2021 that included the climate spending and much of the social policy spending in addition to elements that were not in the original framework, such as four weeks of comprehensive national paid parental leave. The bill would be paid for by a 15% corporate minimum tax, new tax surcharges on Americans making over 10 million and 25 million annually, and an application of net investment income tax to pass through businesses among other revenue raising provisions. It also included an $80 billion investment in the IRS, which was estimated to return $207 billion in revenue for a net gain of $127 billion. While the bill's passage through the House represented an enormous accomplishment for Democrats, they did know in both the House and the Senate that they would face huge challenges in trying to get Cinema and Mansion to sign off on it, as 
they had both objected to the price tag and Mansion, in particular, said the maximum key support was one and a half trillion dollars. In particular, it was Mansion who ended up being the last senator Schumer had to get on board. And in December 2021, Mansion made this surprise appearance on Fox News to announce that he could no longer support the social policy package. He said that he had done everything he could, but he simply couldn't get to an agreement on this bill. And so that came as a shock to many in the Democratic caucus and seemed to sound the death knell for the Build Back Better Act for a while. So a few months down the road, negotiations did in fact start again on a package that was narrowly scaled back to focus on cutting the deficit, lowering prescription drug costs, and tackling climate change. But Manchin appeared to derail those negotiations yet again, purportedly telling Schumer on July 14th that he could not support the climate and tax elements until record-breaking inflation at the time, 9.1% for the month of June, started showing signs of cooling off. And that was a huge blow to Democrats, many of whom said at that point they lost trust in Manchin as a good faith negotiator. It seemed like the climate spending and new tax proposals were dead for good. However, in yet another U-turn in this roller coaster, Manchin released a statement on July 27th that was completely unanticipated that he had come to an agreement with Schumer on an Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, what was effectively a revived reconciliation bill. So what is in this new bill? We're looking at $369 billion in new spending to address the climate crisis, in addition to $64 billion to extend Affordable Care Act premium tax subsidies that were created during the pandemic under the American Rescue Plan Act to provide relief to people enrolled in Medicare, and an $80 billion investment in the IRS. To pay for the bill, we have $313 billion coming from a new 15% corporate minimum book tax, $288 billion from price caps the government is putting on prescription drugs under the Medicare program, that $124 billion from increased IRS enforcement, and $14 billion from raising taxes on carried interests on investment earned by managers in industries such as venture capital and private equity. More than $300 billion of the remainder of that revenue would go towards cutting the deficit, which was a key requirement for Senator Joe Manchin, who has said repeatedly during these talks that he wants to scrub everything from the bill that could exacerbate inflation and cutting the deficit would go a ways towards cooling down inflation. So now that we've gone from Build Back Better to the Inflation Reduction Act, what sort of things have been left out? Pretty much everything else. I mean, the bill leaves on the table huge priorities for several Democrats, including universal pre-K, home care for the elderly and the disabled, and higher quality child care, the expanded child tax credit, and a number of new taxes that were at some point floated for reconciliation, such as the new net investment income tax, a so-called billionaire's tax, a tax on stock buybacks, among many others. What sort of reactions are we seeing from Congress on this agreement? So for many Democrats, 
utter jubilation. The vast majority of Democrats were kept in the dark about secret negotiations between Schumer and Manchin and thought all proposals essentially outside of a slimmed down health package that included prescription drugs and Affordable Care Act subsidies, that's it, we're dead. So especially climate champions such as Brian Schatz of Hawaii and Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island were thrilled that the country would finally make this monumental game-changing progress in fighting climate change with the IRA estimated to reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. And that's a huge deal. Some others I spoke with like Elizabeth Warren and Ron Wyden, the chairman of the finance committee, said there were definitely priorities that were left out that they would have liked to see in there. But they acknowledged that this package is what they could get at the end of the day with 50 votes. And they said after a long slog of negotiation, they are ready to celebrate and get this thing done. For Republicans, of course, this is a huge setback. They hate the idea of providing more funding to the IRS and raising taxes in any way, citing the record-breaking inflation we've seen and continue to see. And minority leader Mitch McConnell called the bill an absolute monstrosity and said Republicans would try to fight it very aggressively. Tax Analysts is proud to announce a partnership with the American Bar Association Section of Taxation to launch the Tax Analysts Public Service Fellowship. This new two-year fellowship offers practicing tax attorneys the opportunity to work in public interest tax law with a nonprofit or government entity. For the inaugural year of this fellowship, the sponsoring organization will be La Posada Tax Clinic in Twin Falls, Idaho. The deadline to apply has now been extended to August 15th. Applicants must either have three years experience practicing law, received an LLM in taxation, or completed a clerkship with the tax court. Experience working with low-income taxpayers or in a public service or immigration-related organization is not required, but would be beneficial. This includes participation in a low-income tax clinic or immigration clinic during law school, volunteering at a volunteer income tax assistance site, or handling tax pro bono matters. Applicants must be independent, committed to a future in public service, flexible, and adept at solving problems. For more information and for links to apply, visit taxnotes.com fellowship. That's taxnotes.com fellowship. What have you heard from the tax community about the tax provisions of the bill? Well, so on one hand, many are happy to see the new IRS funding. I mean, the IRS, of course, experienced substantial processing backlogs during the pandemic that impeded tax professionals from doing their job and prevented taxpayers from receiving much needed tax refunds and tax credits in time. People also had difficulty getting IRS customer service on the line with employees only answering one in 10 phone calls during the 2022 filing season. The 80 billion in new funding would go a ways towards addressing those problems. The 15% corporate minimum tax, according to conversations I've had with tax professionals early on, is a different matter. Some progressive tax analysts say that the new tax would get the most profitable companies making over $1 billion to pay their fair share of taxes, since many of them use accounting mechanisms to pay less federal income tax than average working Americans. However, many practitioners I've spoken with have said the CMT would pose enormous challenges and would make the tax code far more complex. They say 
it would reduce effective tax incentives, certain credits, and do so in an inefficient way on kind of the back end. They also say it would potentially encourage companies to manipulate their financial statements for the purposes of paying less federal income tax. And the purpose, of course, of financial statements is to provide information as transparently and objectively as possible to shareholders and investors. So if the CMT did create perverse incentives to change those statements, that, of course, would not be a great thing. Now that we have the text of the bill, what do we expect to see next out of the Senate? So Schumer has indicated that he wants to put the Inflation Reduction Act to the Senate floor this week before the Senate leaves for August recess. Amendments and changes are certainly possible before then, but there's really one person who could throw a wrench in this whole process, and that's Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. The centrist from Arizona has objected to corporate tax increases before, and while she has previously signed off on the corporate minimum tax, a similar carried interest provision that is currently in the Schumer Mansion bill was jettisoned from the House Build Back Better purportedly over her objections. So everyone is basically holding their breath this week to see what she will say and whether she will allow this critical piece of legislation to move forward. Well, this has been fascinating, and it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. Benjamin, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Raymond Placid explores the tax consequences of restructuring the debt of a real estate partnership in a non-bankruptcy environment. Elizabeth Stevens argues that remote and mobile work presents interpretive challenges for taxpayers and policy challenges for governments under bilateral tax treaties and U.S. tax rules. In Tax Note State, Martin Eisenstein and Nathaniel Bessie examine economic nexus in Colorado. Ronald Fisher explores various state excise taxes, which are used in part to address external and social costs. In Tax Notes International, Jeffrey Owens and Natalia Oliveira Costa consider how the development of the metaverse, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs could fundamentally change established tax concepts and the way tax compliance functions. Lucas de Lima Carvalho analyzes the Brazil-China Tax Treaty Protocol to assess its adherence to the OECD's BEPS initiative. In Featured Analysis, Roxanne Bland considers key TAM lawsuits and whether the New York False Claims Act or Rule 24 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure controls the state's motion to intervene. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Paige. I'm here with John Craig, an associate in the Washington office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you, Ariel. We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article titled, The Appeals Access Saga Continues, which you co-wrote with Saul Mezzi. Could you give us a brief overview of the article? I'd be happy to. And thank you for the invitation to join you today, too. Our article is a review of IRS Appeals Access Controversy, over the years, as IRS Appeals has grown from an IRS-created office 
to an office statutorily created by Congress through the Restructuring and Reform Act in 1998, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in 2015, and most recently, the Taxpayer First Act. Despite statutory statements that seem to imply that Congress wishes broad access to IRS appeals, Congress hasn't written statutory language that would eliminate the controversy regarding the denial of IRS appeals access to taxpayers. This remained the case even after their most recent attempt, the Taxpayer First Act. One of the interesting things that we took away from looking at all of these cases over the years is how similar the fact patterns are. In general, there would be a breakdown between the IRS and the taxpayer that arose during the negotiations over the extension of the period of limitation on assessment. And that led to the IRS denying taxpayers access to IRS appeals. In these cases, the taxpayers then petitioned the district court, while the government points to the Tax Anti-Injunction Act. Despite Congress's legislative action in this area, the results of those cases have remained the same. Courts haven't found that taxpayers are entitled to access IRS appeals in the tax deficiency context. And we'll see if that changes now, but it doesn't appear to us that Hancock County is going to be the case to change that. Thanks, John. What prompted you guys to write about this topic? Well, representing taxpayers before IRS appeals is a big part of our practice. So we try to keep up to date on new IRS appeals access laws and cases where taxpayers seek to access appeals after being denied. With the Taxpayer First Act, Congress's recent attempt to address this space, we recognize that the statute itself was unlikely to resolve controversy. The statute acknowledged that IRS could still deny taxpayers IRS appeals, but it didn't clearly lay out the circumstances where that was warranted. But now is a critical time for seeing exactly how the Taxpayer First Act will change IRS appeals access. With the Hancock case currently on judicial appeal and regulations that the IRS are currently working on, we're hoping that taxpayers get a little more clarity on their right to access IRS appeals. Sounds good. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? Sure. You can find my co-author, Saul, and I at gibsondunn.com or by email at smezzy at gibsondunn.com and craig at gibsondunn.com. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, John. Thank you for having me. You can find John and Saul's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk.
Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.